So we are in a sermon series uh, called King and Kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. And we are now in Matthew chapter 6, and we have been for some time in the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon that goes from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is really explaining and expounding upon what the kingdom is, who we are in the kingdom, and really who the king is. Last week in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, Jesus warned us about the problem of materialism. This idea that we can have earthly treasures, things that we treasure in our heart other than heavenly treasures. As we come to verse 25, he turns to something that's related to materialism something that comes to kind of a twin, kind of a companion to materialism. And that is worry. Worry. Jesus knew that a materialistic focus leads to anxiety, regardless of whether you are rich or poor. And that's the main thing to really understand here. Whether you have or you don't have is not really the issue. If you are materialistically focused, it's going to breed an anxiety in your life. In the passage we read, Jesus uh, tells us not to worry multiple times. In verse 25, he says, do not worry about your life. <laughs> Excuse me. In verse 31, again, he says, do not worry. In verse 34, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. What we have here is Jesus powerfully giving us his remedy for anxiety. Think about it. These people that heard Jesus' words here, when he said it, they needed it. And guess what? We need this today. Look out into the world and the anxiousness that is bred all around the world. The focus on, on mental health and our mental state, you can see it is pervasive. doesn't matter the culture. doesn't matter uh, the people. doesn't matter where. It's everywhere. People looking for a cure. People looking for what to do. People looking for a counsel. What is the advice? What are we supposed to do? And Christ gives it to us here, and we need it. We have to start from the, from the foundational idea that we need it. So this word that's here, uh, that's uh, translated as worry, or maybe being anxious, it has the idea of care or concern. Now, depending on the context, it can refer to a real legitimate concern, or to a sort of sinful anxiousness. And, and think, about with, think about this with me for a moment. How often do legitimate concerns have a way of morphing into or transforming into 
sinful anxieties. You might have seen it in your own life. Started with good, good intentions, started with a, a concern in a, in a right place and with the right motivation. But then our hearts become twisted, our hearts become jaded, and that turns into a sinful anxiety. So what, do you, what is it to be anxious? What does it feel like? I think we've all experienced it at one point or another. I think a great way to describe it is a divided mind. I know that's how I experience when I, when I experience it. One thought pulls you this way, and the other thought pulls you in the other direction. Hope pulls you one way, and, and fear pulls you the other. You wish for the best, but what are you expecting at the same time? The worst. It's interesting when you look at the English word worry and its, and its origins, it comes from a German word that means to choke or strangle. It's a very vivid image to me. In a, real, in a real sense, if you have struggled with worry, you may have experienced that that's what worry feels like. It's sort of an internal strangulation by our circumstances. But what does Jesus say to all that will follow him? Don't be anxious. Do not worry. In reality, if you look into the original language where it says, do not be anxious, he's really sort of forbidding something that's already taking place. The sense is actually more, stop worrying. Stop worrying. Almost as if, I know you're worrying. <laughs> stop worrying. So if you look in verse 25, chapter 6, verse 25 in Matthew, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And then Jesus will go on after here to take sort of two examples, give us sort of two pictures, if you will, about anxiety to sort of help us understand what he's talking about. Two pictures from nature. <coughs> Who does he look at? He says, he, he invites us to take a look, right? Stop, take a look. He says, consider the birds, consider the lilies. What does he say of the birds? He says, take a, take a moment, stop, look. What do they do? They don't farm like you. You probably, Jesus is saying, you've never seen a bird with a little shovel right, going into the ground, digging holes, planting seed, waiting for it to grow, watering it. You don't see that. They don't reap and sow the way that you do, and yet what? They are provided for. He says again, look at the lilies of the field. They don't have a um, something where they're, they're creating fabric to adorn themselves and make them look like anything. They don't, they don't toil. They don't spin. They're not working at anything. And yet what? Our, our Lord adorns them. They are full of beauty. They are adorned beautifully. 
And it's interesting when it talks about the, the birds, it says they don't reap, they gather into bonds, and yet what? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Not their heavenly Father. Your heavenly Father feeds them. And basically in both of these uh, examples, it boils down to one question. For us to look at the birds and to look at the lilies, and the question is, aren't you worth more than them? Aren't you worth more than them? The answer is, of course you are. You are created in God's image. More than that, you are recreated through his son Jesus. God has bought you with a great price to himself. Then you are of infinite value and worth to the heavenly Father. So where does your worry come from? Your Father will take care of you. We came out of a long series uh, over these past weeks in the Lord's Prayer, which is just a little further up in Matthew chapter 6. What does Jesus instruct us to pray? What does Jesus instruct us to ask the Father about? Give us this day our daily bread. Now think about Jesus here. If he's instructing us to ask this, don't we have a good reason to think that he will provide it? If we're constantly worried about whether we're going to have enough for tomorrow or what we're going to have on our clothes we're going to have on our back tomorrow, doesn't this, aren't we challenging God in a sense? He's already taught us to pray, give us our daily bread. Will God mock himself by not answering that prayer to, for us to be provided for our needs? Think about it for a moment. In between these two examples, uh, Jesus makes a statement in, in verse 27, where he says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? This is a sobering question, I think, for all of us. I don't think we always spend a lot of time thinking about how many days we have numbered. I don't know that we do that. But the obvious answer is, can you add one moment to your lifespan by worrying? It's an obvious answer. What's the answer? No. There's kind of a, a point, there's a pointlessness in worrying. There's an emptiness in worrying. There's a fruitlessness in worrying. There's actually a foolishness in worrying. You can't add a year, a month, a week, a day, or even a second by worrying. Now, worrying may certainly affect the quality of your life, but it won't add to the length of your life. Why? We have to come to this idea, God is sovereign. Your life is in his hands. Biblically, if you look at it, what does God say? He has what? Numbered your days. 
from very first breath to the last. And again, I don't think we spend much time thinking about our last breath. I don't think we do. Unless maybe you've had a moment in your life where you've come close to that. Scripture spends a lot of time instructing us maybe that we should meditate upon that for a moment here or there. Let me just tell you what Scripture says. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my power. Job chapter 14, verse 5. Since a person's days are determined and the number of his months depends on you, and since you have set limits, he cannot pass. This is God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. Famously, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, what does it say? There is an occasion for everything and a time for everything under the sun, a time to give birth and a time to die. Psalm 39, verse 4. Lord, make me aware of my end. Do you hear that this morning? Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. God's word. And Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes, this is amazing, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. It's God's word. <laughs> your survival depends on divine sovereignty, not on human anxiety. God has sovereignly ordered our steps. No accidents in his plan. He knows who we are. He knows what we need. He loves and cares for each one of us individually. He will be sure to give us everything we need to fulfill his purpose and will in our lives. So, do we know what we need to do? Well, I think we know we need to stop worrying. Easy, right? Everyone's going everyone's gonna to leave here and stop worrying immediately. I know for sure, right? See, it can be hard to say no to worry if you don't have something better to say yes to. Just saying stop worry is like, okay, well, if I stop worrying, then what do I do? We have to replace it with something. The affections in our heart, you know, if you take an affection out of your heart, uh, you got to replace it with something. It's going to get replaced with something. So better that you take the initiative to do that replacing. See, anxiety, it's really an addiction of the heart. And you can't, it's not one of those things you, you break cold turkey and say no to. <clears throat> but if you come to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus gives us what we should be doing. He says, don't worry. 
But then what do you suppose, if you say no to worry, what must you say yes to? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Don't worry, but be seeking. This is really the key statement here. Really, you could say this verse is the key statement of the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. It kind of all sort of hinges around this statement. Matthew 6.33, it's sort of a secret to a blessed life, a blessed death, a blessed eternity. And if you wanted to take verse 33 and boil it down into three simple words, I think you could do it, and that would be put God first. Put God first. Don't worry. Seek God. Put him first. Why? Why should we put God first? Well, let me tell you, God, God prioritized you. 1 John 4.19 says we love God. Why? Because he did what? He first loved us. It's the reason why I am here. It's the reason why you are here. It's the reason why we are saved. God loved us first. In Romans 8.29, Jesus is called the firstborn among many brethren. See, the reason you and I are children of God is because God sent who? His Holy Son first. So I want to challenge you today, this morning. Put God first. But you, you, I'm sure you have another question for me. Just like you said, well, if I have to stop worrying, what do I need to do? And I said, be seeking. And then I said, be seeking is putting God first. And now you're going to ask me what? How do I put God first? Well, I think we get kind of two big ideas for that. First, to put God first, we must two things. One, seek God and trust God. Seek God and trust God. We're encouraged to seek after God. I think you can boil down people into three categories. There are those that don't seek God. Those that aren't seeking God, they don't really know what joy is. They can't really know what joy is, right? So there's three groups. One, those that don't seek God. Then there are those that seek God, but not first. They seek God, but not first. And these people would be the most miserable of people, and they don't know why. When in reality, what's going on within their hearts? There's a civil war going on within their own hearts. So there's people who don't seek God, and there's people who seek God but not Him first. And then there are those who what? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and that is where true joy is found. So I want to urge you this morning, seek God, but seek God 
personally, personally, if you grew up in church um, and you're of this approximately the same age as me, you probably learned this verse in the King James, most likely, right? Or you probably sang the song that was in the King James anyway. How, well, how does the King James say this, Matthew 6, 33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's kind of an old formulation. But I think that ye in there tells us something, can, can tell us something. You seek first the kingdom of God. And let me tell you, you cannot seek God for someone else. And no one can seek God for you. It's an individual matter. It's an intimate matter. You must seek God for yourself. You can't rely on anyone else's seeking. In John chapter 6, it's a, it's a fascinating account in John chapter 6. We're not going to take the time to read it, but I encourage you, if you do take time uh, when you go home, to just sit and read through it. But I, I'm going to give you the highlights here. We, in John chapter 6, we have an account of Jesus' life that I think helps us understand a little bit about seeking after God. Some insight into the motives behind that and some insight into seeking God personally. So in John chapter 6, in the account, there are two, there are two images and two numbers that I want you to focus on in John chapter 6. So in the beginning of John chapter 6, we learn that apparently word is spreading that Jesus is doing miracles, healing. And in John chapter 6, verse 5, we're told that Jesus lifts up his eyes, and what does he see? He sees a large crowd coming towards him. That's the first image I want you to have emblazoned in your mind. A large crowd coming towards Jesus. How big was this crowd? Well, he's about to feed them miraculously with five loaves and two, two fish. We learn there's 5,000 men most likely there. If you add everyone else, could have been upwards of 20,000 people. So again, an image and a number. And there's going to be two of them. A large crowd of people coming towards Jesus. And the number, let's say 20,000. I want you to think about that this morning. And what does Jesus do? He feeds them all miraculously. And then over the course of that night, his disciples, Jesus and his disciples, they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to Capernaum. And the next day, what happens? The crowd, what do they figure out? Oh, where's Jesus? Jesus went to the other side. And it says they get into boats to follow Jesus. What are they doing? They're seeking him, aren't they? They're seeking him. They find Jesus in Capernaum. But what does Jesus know? Jesus knows their motives. And he tells them that they are seeking him. Why? Because their bellies are full of bread. And then we see Jesus starts giving them some hard truth. This crowd that's come, 
his larger group of disciples. Then you've got what? His inner group of 12 disciples. And then Jesus starts giving all of them some hard truth about the fact that what? He is the bread of heaven that has come down. Basically saying that I haven't come here to do tricks. I'm not a magician. I am God. Jesus goes on and he tells them the cost of discipleship, the true cost of seeking after God. And this is too much for even some of the wider group of disciples. And and here's the second image I want you to focus on. So the first image was what? A crowd of people coming to Jesus. And what was the first number? 20,000. Here's the second image I want, to focus, I want you to focus on. In verse 66 of John chapter 6, it says that in light of that hard truth that Jesus had said, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Here's the second number I want you to see. In verse 67 of chapter 6, Jesus addresses who? Who does he address? the 12 core disciples that were left. John 6 starts with what? 20,000 seeking after Jesus and ends with what? This image of many disciples turning their backs and walking away and then who's left? 12. 12. See, truly seeking God personally is not just going along with the crowd. It's not just seeking Him for what you can get. It's seeking Him even if no one else does. I want you to hear me this morning. You cannot rely on your wife to seek God for you. You can't rely on your husband to seek God for you. You can't rely on your parents to seek God for you. You can't rely on your children to seek God for you. You can't rely on your pastor to seek God for you. You must seek God for yourself. And in that moment in John chapter 6, Jesus looks at his 12 remaining disciples and asks them, do you want to go away too? And Peter, as he does, in a moment of brutal honesty, really insight and wisdom in that moment, he says in, in verses 68 and 69, where, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. Church, this is why we should be seeking after Jesus. This is why we should be sticking with Jesus, not because he always does what I want him to do, the way I want him to do it, when I want him to do it. I'm sticking with Jesus 
Because where else, where else would I go? If you walk away from Jesus, where do you go? No one better. So you must seek God personally. How else should we seek God? We must seek God continually. Again, in the language, in the original language here, where it says, it's a command, it says, seek first. In the original language, it's actually a continuing action. Jesus is more like he's saying what? Keep seeking first the kingdom of God. So we're reminded here that our salvation is not just limited to one moment in time, a singular event, but it's the beginning of a lifelong process of continuously, perpetually seeking after God. If you look back into medieval Europe, uh, there were monasteries that started springing up where uh, people would seek to um, uh, leave regular everyday life, leave materialism and come and live together. And, you know, they would take many vows and they would focus themselves upon God. And it was a practice when a new person would come to one of these monasteries to dedicate their lives, they would receive a simple cloth robe that would be their new garment for this new journey that they were going to be on, living in this monastery, dedicating their life. But what was interesting was the street clothes that they came in, they did not throw those away. They left them hanging in the closet for the person. Why? So every morning they woke up and they come to that closet, they have to make a decision to continue on in this new journey or to go back into the old ways. And in a sense, every morning God by His mercy wakes us up We need to make a fresh decision to seek after God and not seek after sin. We must seek after God personally. We must seek after God continually. And we need to seek after God ultimately. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. When he says first, it's not the first in a series or an order or a process. It is first in what? Priority. Jesus isn't just saying, put God first and your family second and your, and your education or your job third. No, he's saying God should be the most important thing in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that you should have no concern for other areas in your life or areas that matter to you. It means that, hear me this morning, it means that your commitment to God sets, shapes, and guides every other area of your life. 
So you seek God first in your family. Seek God first in your job. Seek God first in your education. And that the Lord, he will not take second place in your life. He desires first place. He deserves first place. He demands first place in your life. And, and I want you to hear a word of caution this morning. No matter who you are. If you think you're too young to seek God, if you think you're too old to seek God, or too busy to seek God, or too comfortable to seek God, or too tired to seek God, or too successful to seek God, or too sinful to seek God, or too proud to seek God. Hear me this morning. One day, one day, it may be too late to seek God. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says what? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. How do you put God first? The first answer is this. Seek God. Seek Him personally. Seek Him continually. Seek Him ultimately. But there's more to this in this verse, six, chapter 6, verse 33. There's a second answer. And that's you seek God, but you also trust God. See, that verse 33, it begins with a command, doesn't it? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does it end with, though? A promise. A divine promise. And all these things will be added to you. One commentator put it this way, and I thought it really encapsulated it well. God's people live on promises not, no, excuse me. God's people live on promises, not explanations. We don't live on explanations. We live on promises. And you can live a, on a promise for a long time if you trust the one who made the promise. This is God's guarantee. If you put God first, he will take care of everything else. Put me first. I will take care of everything else. If you look back at Matthew 6, uh, verse 31, Jesus again says, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And he gives two more reasons in verse 30, 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. The Gentiles, the unbelievers, those that do not know God, they seek after these things. People that don't have God on their side have to worry about what tomorrow is going to bring. 
And if you look at the, at the end of verse 32, it says, your Heavenly Father knows, He knows that you need all these things. Every need of your life lies within the compassion of God. If you go further back into Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, what does it say? Your Father in heaven knows what you need even before you ask. And I think that's an important word here. As we've been talking about the Lord's Prayer for weeks now, ask, ask. To trust God is to ask Him. To pray instead of worrying. Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7. What does Paul say? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. As we come to close here this morning, Jesus is saying here, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. In the original language, it's a very interesting sort of phrase. In the original language, it's, it's more like all these things will be placed alongside you. Placed alongside you. Not in front of you, alongside you. And it's really odd. You will never get your needs met. And hear me this morning. It sounds backwards, but you will never get your needs met by focusing on your needs. But if you seek God, by the time you look up, He'll provide what you need. You'll see it next to you. Verse 34 concludes this paragraph in this section. It says, Therefore, in light of this promise, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God's called us to live today for him. Focus on today. Focus on today. And watch, watch what happens to anxiety. And if tomorrow comes, what can we be assured of? You know, each day is going to have trouble of its own. It's interesting. It's almost as Jesus understands that there's going to be some worry today. <laughs> Well, what should we do? Let's limit it to today. Our God is taking us through one step at a time. Be responsible today and not fretting about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If there will be new troubles tomorrow, there will also be fresh grace for us. Think about this. The God who took care of our greatest problem at the cross 
can surely be trusted to take care of anything else we face daily in this life. He has secured our eternity. If he's secured your eternity, won't he see you through today? There's no need to worry. God is on his throne, and you are in his hands. See him on the throne and know that you are in his hands. Thanks be to God. Let's worship the Lord and respond to his word together.